0: I came back to Papakura
1: and I was pretty quickly away to the Middle East, Uh, when I say quickly, within something like a month and I got over there and uh, my war began.
2: Welcome to Courage and Valour, the New Zealanders in the Italian campaign of World War II. Episode 2, Into Italy, into Battle. The Courage and Valour podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist Nazi rule during World War II. In this episode, the soldiers of the 2nd New Zealand Division are battle ready. Their training in Egypt is complete, and we hear how they made their way to Alexandria to cross the Mediterranean Sea to disembark on Italian soil at Taranto. Further training in the south of Italy as all their equipment arrived and then the New Zealand Division was ready to rejoin the British 8th Army and head back into battle.
1: My arrival in Egypt, we went to Mina camp and uh, we were, the Div was across in Marty then. Uh, so I, but it after, I think I was only there a week or two and, uh, and I was transferred to Marty and I joined these fellows.
3: Anyhow, eventually we were transferred to uh, Mardi Camp um, and at that stage the Desert War had just finished and the units were all being uh, gathered together at Mardi Camp. And I was uh, put into 17 Platoon, uh, D Company, 24th Battalion, Infantry Battalion. Um, and so I was Vividly aware that although I'd already had three years and I was probably equally as uh, efficient with firearms and so on, um, these guys had been through the real thing.
2: Some of the soldiers already in the division who had seen action in the desert underwent extra training courses in Egypt to upskill for the next campaign. Pat Green explains how he retrained as a range taker for the mortar platoon.
4: When the dip came back from... Tunisia, I was uh, uh, still in base, they wouldn't send us up to the division in, in the late stages of the Tunisia, it was a bloody long way, I think it was two, 2000 Ks or something. Anyway, um, when the division came back I had uh, been to the Div School of Instruction on two courses one was uh, mortars and one was uh, range taking. When I wasn't very fit, I had a yarn to the orderly room with my, uh, corporal, and I said, "Well, I'm not very fit, and I want to get fit, and I want to go back. And I, uh, can you put me on a bloody course that's not too physical? I don't want to go on a battle bloody uh, 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 training assault course sort of thing." He said, "I got just the thing for you." lying down taking ranges, so I went to the div school for three weeks and then to you be a, a range taker and when the DIV came back and uh, two of us that were in base at beaten in hospital, we went back to the battalion and uh, we, uh, we said well, we were D company Blacks, and the officer there, he said uh, what platoon? He said, Well, we were in separate platoons, but uh we'd go into we'd we we do not give a bag of which one as long as we're together. And uh, he said, Well oh, hang on, I got the nominal role of the uh, company and we'd been away four months and there was only two blokes we knew in it out of a hundred. Yeah, and uh, and I said, but uh, oh, hang on, I, uh, I w- want to get into the mortar platoon. And Ray Board, who was known as Skarner Board, a Rotorua bloke, he was the adjutant, And he'd been quite good up for then. And when I said, oh, we wanted to get into the mortar platoon. God damn it, Ray. he said. I've marched into the bloody battalion before you tell me where you want to go." I looked him in the bloody eye and I said, then you say, it's too bloody late, why didn't you speak up? <laughs> he stopped and he looked at me, All right, I said, <clears throat> I'll get in touch with Garth Turbot, the mortar officer. And I said, yeah, well, I have been to the dip School uh, and done a mortar course and I've done a range truck course. I said, my mate hasn't but he's been wounded twice and uh, we think it would be a bit easier on both of us uh, in a mortar platoon rather than a rifle company platoon. And, uh, but we want to be together. And I'd persuaded Bob to go with me into this. And so we were accepted and uh, I was, uh, they had a range taker that had been wounded in North Africa, and, uh, well, as a range taker, you didn't take ranges all day, every day, so they used me as a wireless operator on a a smaller set, and uh, running messages, I was was a bloody uh, runner, and it was a dangerous bloody job, that (laughs) bastard, everyone else was in 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 under cover, when you were being sheltered, you had to get from point A to point B with your bloody message and uh, so uh, as a as a range taker, my job was to uh, take the range from the gun to the uh, target if you could see it and uh, there was only one range taker in the battalion, so it was a rather unique job but uh, they asked me to train up a bloke uh, and the anti-tank had one then, too.
3: Um, and so, or well, we did some manoeuvres out from Egypt and had a bit of um, leave in Cairo. So anyhow, from there we did the 100-mile march up from Cairo to Alexandria, up to the seacoast, and then onto the ship and over to Italy.
1: Well, we did a 90-mile route march
5: from Mina to Burkhal We marched then from Mardi up to Alexandra. And we marched in the, at night time, and in the, in, in the daytime we pulled off and rested up in the sand, and boy, was it hot.
6: So we route-marched, started off at half past six at night, Uh, carried some of our gear. I, I was a Bren gunner and I had to carry the Bren. We marched the first night, we'd done 18 kilometres and I increased it every night and we got to a place called Burgal Arab. We marched 15 miles every night. Um,
7: it was, wasn't overly hot, but it was dusty. Um, we we'll always look forward to that half a bottle of beer and a cup of tea and a slice of bread and jam when we got to bed and we slept two men for a bivvy. And uh, my bivvy mate and I, we played endless games of patience all day. We just deal the cards, play patience. There's nothing else to do in the desert. Now, uh, the battalion had formed a pipe band and we are the only battalion in the New Zealand Army that had its its own pipe band, and when we started out for marching the the band was pretty rugged, but they were pretty good by the next night, (laughs) you know, men marching and the timing's not right, you get out of cadence, so they got so much flack from the guys that they got it right.
4: To get us fit, we, they walked us from Cairo to or Marty to Alexandria, about a hundred miles. We did it at night on the Tassia Road, and uh, <coughs> we did it. We did it about twenty k's a night, and and I found it hard going. Uh, I'd been wounded and uh, had jaundice, and uh, one after the other, and I. I, I, I was really not fit for about a year afterwards, the us mostly, <coughs> and, uh, and that that war put me right.
5: And uh, when we got up to uh, Alexandra, we, went, we pulled off and uh, had to rest up there for a few days in a um, fruit field, and of course everybody got the diarrhoea, eating all this bloody fruit.
6: And we was there, I forget now how long, but while we was there, we'd done a, a mock battle and a full artillery fire. And one of our guns had a quick barrel and it was dropping the shells short and I dropped into the Maori Battalion and I killed 14 Maori fellas
5: and I was running down the hill and fell over and took the skin off my knee, and of course I got an infected knee. And when we got on the boat to go to Italy, I was in the hospital boat because my knee was so bad. So when we got over to Adelaide into Italy, I was sort of carried off onto Italy soil. Uh, and
1: with that finished, and corns on my feet. Uh, we uh, we went across to Italy.
6: We left there to a place called Amorea. We packed from there was a staging area, and we went from there to Alexandria to get on the boat. We didn't know where we was going, but each man had to carry his own swag and a two-gallon tin of water onto the boat.
8: And we went on a a boat called the New Holland. Now, I don't even know ships at all. You've been on them? The the are they go straight down like this. And, uh, (laughs) well, that's where the anchor was and all the rest of it up there because they can't put much cargo up there. So they put us guys up there. We're right up the bow and you've got to go down because where you go down is only about the square, you know. Straight down, straight down. So we're down in there. And toilet never everything down there. We have buckets. So what we had to do was put a man on, on each deck so you would pull it up and work it around there on the next one. So that's our we have a toilet man. there. And of course, when you hear the noise down there, holy hell, you think, you know, there's noise, you know, on, on the deck, if they even drop something, you think, oh, you know. So we're down there. And... Uh, I don't know how long. We, Toronto, we, we went ashore, short Toronto.
6: And we finished up at Toronto in Italy.
9: And of course when we landed in Italy, they surrendered. So, but the Germans were still hanging on
1: there. You see, Italy hadn't, they hadn't seen any fighting yet. Uh, Italy had just capitulated. Uh, and the Yanks, And uh, they they took some of the bottom part of Italy uh, and gave us a a bit of a stepping stone.
6: Uh, We sort of came in from there on. We landed in Italy on the 9th of October, 1943.
0: I got to the Middle East just before the finish of the war in the desert. Just in time to go over to Italy. When I went away, there was about 1,100 officers. Had been, you see, to put you in the picture, um, when Japan started overrunning the whole of the Pacific, we finished up in New Zealand with the Portuguese army. We had more officers than NCOs. So when it came to being put overseas, everybody who had a commission had to re- resign their commission, and. Uh, we all had to resign our commissions, but then they had to have a certain number of officers to take the troops overseas, and I was one of the lucky. I was only just 21 at the time. I was one of the lucky ones that they pulled the hat, my name out of the hat, so I went away as a second lieutenant. And uh, of course, the interesting thing about this is that the platoon I took over was the oldest buggers and the hardest-hitting blokes that you'd get. And of course they, you can imagine what it was like from their point of view, that here's here's a snotty-nosed 21-year-old going to take them over and (laughs) or bully them around and order them to what to do. But I had the privilege of saying that at that time I was engaged to a girl and her brother was in the 21st Battalion and I'd gone out from my Jeep one night, over to the 21st to see um, this intended brother-in-law, which never happened. And uh, when I got back, my platoon sergeant got to come out. He was waiting for me. He said, I'm going to tell you, boy. He said, if you ever want to go out in that jeep, he said, I'll take you. You study or st- <laughs> you don't go out on your own. So I had some good troops, so They were good good boys. I mean, I can tell you from an officer's point of view, I mean, a different story to a, uh, just the average bloke. He can tell you what passes we
8: were some of us. <laughs> <laughs> you what know, think it was thinking hot eh and some, some of these fellas, they're they just about out the monk you know with the heat and that because we've been down in there for five days, you know and uh, you, you, not if you go up on deck and wander around or anything like that because they had all the stuff on the deck too. and uh, yeah we thinking so anyway, we get to Toronto. And we go ashore in lighters, and uh, then we got to march out where we were. It was just on ten miles. Um, and uh,
3: went ashore by lighters and marched um, some miles out of town. Of course, the Taranto uh, had been a naval base for Italian, for the Italian Navy. Uh, and they had a, a sort of an inner harbour there, where a bridge lifted up to let the ships go through. The British Fleet Arm, with the old Swordfish bombers and torpedo bombers, had got stuck in, and boy, there were ships upside down, and 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 they'd done a pretty good job to
5: So uh, we moved up into the hills there, watched the girls picking olive berries, because all the boys were all watching, looking at it, looking at the girls
9: in Italy. The Italians, we didn't get on with them very well because the Germans told we were going to shoot them and rape them and all that. Well, we not in that line of business. And we thought, oh, yeah. And we had a job and you couldn't trust them. You know, they uh, they'd in, been with the Germans, Germans would go back, see. Some of them went back with the Germans and all that. And we just camped
7: up in a sort of a pine forest type of thing, it wasn't, it wasn't a pine forest like we'd know, it was just pine trees all going
3: together. Yeah we were sort of recovering and waiting there at this place uh, out of Toronto for quite a while while everything caught up with us, all the armour and, and uh, trucks and everything else. I remember one night we used to have um, uh, p- outdoor pictures and there'd be a big screen put up and we'd all go and just sit in uh, and, and front and look at the pictures. Um, and we were all there sitting and the most tremendous storm I've ever been in in my life started. I had never ever and haven't even since seen lightning like that. And of course all the shipping, the harbour was chock-a-block full of Allied shipping. And they all have a barrage balloon. Uh, up above the ship, tied from the back of the ship, to keep low-flying aircraft uh, higher up. And uh, they're full of helium or something uh, that burns at a rate lighter than air. Um, and a lot of these balloons were hit with lightning. It was forked lightning, and we'd never been used to forked lightning here and it was a great sight to see them all burning and falling uh, but it must have been a heck of a job for the, the crews on the ships uh, and it was very dramatic and incredible uh, heavy
8: rain and then down comes the bloody rain eh? rain rain i thought it wasn't going to stop actually
1: uh, the place was quite flooded and
7: it rained and it rained a bit more and then it kept raining and around the year there are lots of little caves big enough for one or two guys and we sort of tucked ourselves into these
8: spots and left to keep dry and it's just all all stone fences and that so being like we were, we were still fighting in the desert. You know, we were still that, And we uh, we all got against the stone fences and that. And, uh, and we had our little pup tents and all this. Um, I was in a bivvy on my own. Uh, we lived in
3: these little two man bivvies with little four inch walls. I had pitched mine on a mound. And of course, a lot of the chaps had done like they did in Egypt. They had dug down and put a stone under the little pole uh, to make a bit more room that you could sit up. You normally couldn't sit up in one of these. You crawled in and crawled out. And so I was in one of these on the night, and uh, sometimes during the night, there's a scratching on the front of my bivvy. And, uh, hey, Collie, you got room in there. And I said, yes, who's that? Oh, Norm Harris here, and here's this guy comes crawling in and doth down beside me, because I think I must have been about the only guy still dry in the whole
8: battalion. And meanwhile, we'd gone for a bit of an a uh, exercise over, oh, well, we went up about 30 or 35 miles to, to a place and they had all these little houses that looked like beehives. That's the people that lived in them. Oh, they're great. It's well known. It's down, down where we were. Anyway, we stayed in them, but the bloody bugs eat us about alive. <laughs> we we might have been there. so anyway. We eventually get back to our, where we live, and here's all our trenches, and all full of water and that. Yeah. So we learnt then that we had to get up on top of the ground, you know. Yeah. And then we, we'd we'd have night exercises. And uh, there's a little town there and you go to that. The only trouble is, the old Eiters, they use the stone walls for toilets. Oh, hell. And you jump over the wall, you know. Oh, hell and stink, eh? So we had to stop that because we couldn't wash our clothes or anything. Yeah. So the old die, they, they, the nearest uh, fence is the toilet, you know. They, do, they don't have the water and all that we got, you know. So we learnt that one.
3: Oh, yeah, well,
8: Aitai villages were pretty primitive.
3: There was no sewage Sometimes, and of course during wartime, and you've got to remember that, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of men, Italian men, were prisoner of war in North Africa. Uh, And, you know, there were little kids running around, hungry all over the show. And uh, uh, what war does to a country, you know, the first thing the Allies did was to cancel the currency. You know, you imagine that happening here, suddenly all your money's gone. They cancelled the currency and issued occupation money. And I've still got a piece of it somewhere, there Yeah. I, yeah. I, I gave mine away. <laughs>
7: <laughs> and the only alcohol in the area was this stuff called Purple Death. We gave it that name. It was a red wine. And vicious as hell, and it would stain your teeth purple. We all had enamel mugs. I think we all finished up with purple enamel mugs. And if a jacob up chucked on the ground, there'd be a big purple patch, and the big purple (laughs) patch would stay there for quite a long time. I went up to the village where we were. were once and it was a pretty southern Italy village, a pretty basic place. The drainage system sort of seemed to run down the middle of the main street, uh, street. and everything went down the middle. And of course it didn't, didn't particularly impress the guys. You <laughs>
0: didn't go... I only went up there once, I think. My arrival to Italy, my, my, one memory of it was sitting in a bloody bivvy with the water all around, <laughs> just mm-hmm. lapping the sides of the the, the bivvy. But uh, one of the jobs, the first jobs I landed when I went up in Italy was to go down and find out what was going on like what was on this down the Sangra River, to take a patrol down and go and see what's going on down there which wasn't exactly uh, an exciting thing to do because I had been doing a lot of swimming. I had to go down to the river and go across and see what was going on on the other side and come back and report. I I was just getting halfway across the river. the bloody German on the other side happened to like a cigarette and I thought, well I've found out what I want to know. <laughs> I turned round and went back again. I didn't worry about going, going over to find out. <laughs> so I, I reported back, it was bloody cold that night too, just quietly shivering there because I'd taken most of my clothes off but I still was dry when I went back. I said, well there's definitely Germans over the other side.
2: Bob O'Brien explains how many of the officers and senior NCOs who had served at home in New Zealand had to drop their ranks when they went to Egypt so the division didn't end up too top heavy.
0: I, I, I arrived in the Middle East and, and as I said there was about nearly a thousand officers went over and of, of them I would say there was 90% of them went away as sergeants. I was one of the ones that kept their commission. I was only just turned 21. There were of blokes, and every one of them had been into action but me. So you can imagine a cat watching a mouse. First time I wanted to do something, I said, well, who's coming with me? And it was a dead silence. A bloody sergeant. He said, I think I'll go with you and just see that you don't get into mischief. Shortly after that, I was transferred to, uh,
3: from 18 plato- seventeen platoon to 18th platoon. And they put a strike back on my arm. Not that we ever wore stripes. Um, and so then the move up to the Sangro River.
1: Our first action was at the Sangro River where uh, uh, we did our first attack. What an experience. I never thought I'd see such a bloody muddle in my life.
4: We moved to a forward area and the Sangro River was on the east coast. We were inland about 12, 20, 15, 20 miles I suppose. And uh, we uh, heard our first angry bombs fired in anger at us
5: uh, in, in Italy. We moved up to the Sangro and on the way up a chap sitting beside me, Johnny Hunter, was telling me, by rights, the oldest son in their family had all killed at war. And he was the oldest son. I said to him, don't talk like that. Anyhow, Johnny Hunter, he was killed in about two days' time.
1: Uh, I would have thought that the war would have been a more orderly thing. And I thought, We'd have known better what was happening, what was going on and what people were doing. But I don't think anybody knew. I think it was all brand new uh, to create news. Uh, Yes, uh, I don't think anybody knew. uh, But as we used to say, we get all mucked up. Uh, We get mucked up, Jerry gets mucked up. We're so used to
5: getting mucked up that Kiwis come out winners. Just before we dropped us off, we were going up the road and I saw all these little crosses on the side of the road. (coughs) I said to my cobb, it doesn't look too good up here, mate. So they dropped us off and we had to um, dig in on a forward slope. (coughs) It was very, very foggy. Of course, these jokers were digging in on the forward slope, but it was very stony too. So, uh, a Cobra of Mine, Colin Rossiter and I, we didn't seem to be getting on too good. Just digging anyhow. An Indian guy came running along, following a sigoire. He said to me, "I wouldn't dig in here, mate." He said they'd shelled hell out of this yesterday. And um.
3: We started to dig in, we got there uh, to our position in the late afternoon and uh, we started to dig in, 18 platoon, uh, on the forge slope facing down to the river um, and I got down about halfway with a slit trench and the order came out to stop digging, um, you're going across the river on a fighting patrol to get a prisoner. So later on, our platoon commander was uh, Chap Cell Phillips. Um, And uh, we finally, after it got real dark, we followed a power line all the way down to the river. And it's a huge, wide river. And just melted snow at that stage. So the only way across the river, of course, was to wade across. So you step down into this freezing water and uh, at one stage I know in the deepest part it came up to my chin and I was on my tiptoes and holding your rifle above your head and so on. Fortunately it was quite um, a reasonably light night that you could have, if there'd been enemy on the bank on the other side we were gone, Uh, they could have picked us off quite easily however there was no one there we hunted around and and we found the banks on the other side were unoccupied they were further up the hill and they had patrols every now and then and we were fortunate that we landed and were there in between the patrol arriving so of course back across the river again uh, and back to our positions, and I uh, said, "Well, you're, you're going to be in a different position. <laughs> so, further back up the hill under some olive trees, and start digging all over again." And cold as charity, we'd had nothing to eat um, since the we left the day before, um, and still wet through. Of course, not. a hope you never have any change of clothes or anything. So. Um, Oh, we we
5: overcame that. Anyhow, the fog gradually lifted and it started to drizzle rain. And a friend of ours, he was dug in a bit underneath an olive tree and he got his ground sheet out, tied under the branches to cover him. So you know what happened when the, the SP gun came up on the other side of the river. You know what happened, he got a direct hit straight on top of the ground sheet. So Ross, as soon as they, they started to shell them, I said to my cobbler, Rossiter, let's go. So we ran forward and sat down across the creek, under a bank all day. And these all my cobbers up there getting shelled. So I wasn't, I wasn't waiting. So that night, Sammy Lee, the officer, said to me, Rother to come here. I, wa- I believe you've had an easy day, somebody had told him. I want you to take the stretcher and go up and get Snow Holloway, bring him down the hill, down to the road, along the road, the Padre be waiting for you down there. So off we go. We get up there and poor old Snow Holloway. He absolutely chopped to bits. And here I am getting him out, I was covered in blood. And this is the first night in the line. And if I'd only taken something to tie him on the stretcher, it was dark, and of course I went in front, and I tripped over a couple of times and rolled him off. And um, I had to pick him up again, and of course more blood. So when we got along the road, The Padre was there and we got a blanket wrapped around him. And he said, put him in the hole. So we put him in the hole. The Padre said a few words. He said, now there's the shovel, fill him in. And that's the first night in the line. It wasn't a very good start.
3: Uh, we got incredibly accurate shellfire from then on. The Germans had left an observation post in a church steeple. Uh, on our side of the road before they retired they'd blown the bridge Um, and he was directing the uh, artillery their artillery and um, not the following day three of our Sherman tanks came over the ridge up behind us and uh, in a matter of minutes almost they were smoking wrecks Uh, a few shots from the German 88, and uh, that was the end of the Shermans. uh, And all the crew was killed inside them, of course. So um, then, um, you know, we existed there probably for about a week before the attack while they were planning things and um, just starting to get our clothes dry with body heat and so on. It was very wet. Um, and trying to sleep in a slip trench, I had a, um, I dug a, a sort of a seat on the end of mine because there's a big tree root there I couldn't cut. And I used to sit on that and sleep sitting up. Because you had your turn as sentry as well.
4: <clears throat> and I was with a mate. We'd be up and we're occupied. We saw an apple tree. We hadn't seen apples. They don't grow in Italy much. Uh, well, they hadn't. They didn't grow in Egypt or Palestine much. And we'd been uh, more than two years away out of New Zealand. So, Bill and I are picking bloody apples and we heard a bloody shell coming. We looked at each other and there was a, a house about a hundred meters away. We never sheltered in the house. There weren't any houses in the desert to shelter. Anyway, anyway, we took off for this bloody house, and when we got in, got in the door. Um, well, shells arrived before we got there, but we got th- through the door, and there was a whole lot of bloody wires, that um, signal crowded bloody, and they were lying on the floor. Bill, I, I. I'd taken prizes at school for bloody sprinting, but Bill beat me into that bloody door and uh, he tripped over these wires and put the cartilages out in his knees, and he had to go back to Egypt to get them fixed. Yeah, and uh, but we'd, we'd, we sort of had to make a split-second decision: would we go into a bloody house? <clears throat> and we did go into it, and it was good, and we. We continued to do that, to take shelter any time after that, uh, which was quite a few times.
6: We played around there on the Sango River for, I don't know how long, but while we was there, we had to go out on patrol at night on listening posts on the river. One night, one of our battalion chaps went down there and one of our officers that was a new man to the outfit, the, the uh, chap that went out on patrol, he was coming back and he didn't give the officer a, a quick enough answer to the challenge and he got shot in the stomach. There's a chap named Billy Friday. I think he was a an islander, he was a dark-skinned boy anyway, nice bloke. And he'd come back, he lived in Rotorua for many years afterwards.
8: And so then we had to go across the Shangro, and it rained like hell. I think they put it off for three nights. It rained like hell. Close even the water was up to here on me, you know. And down below, when the Gurkhas went across, they reckon they lost about 300. Because the old Gurkhas only up to about here on me.
3: And uh, so we crossed the river under a, again, it was in flood. But by that time they had strung wires across. So we hung onto the wire and uh, the water was running so fast, I know at one stage uh, my feet were off the ground and just hand over hand. And if those wires had broken, oh, gee, there would have been hundreds of guys drowned. You know, you got all your gear on, they have a sack on your back and, and hobnail uh, boots and ammunition, you know, pouches full of ammo and grenades and stuff. Um, however, it didn't break, so we got there,
5: and uh, it wasn't very warm, I tell you, and um, just before we crossed, the officer gave to, said to me, Gilvin, here's another water bottle filled with brandy. It wasn't whiskey, it was brandy. When you get over the other side, give all your men a drink of brandy out of it, so that suited me fine. Because when we got over there, some of the fellows wouldn't have it. So I had their share.
9: <laughs> we got halfway across the river there, and one of our blokes, Roy Clark, had got washed away, and the Indians pulled him out two days after down the river. Yeah, he was our mule man in Italy, and he, he, he trained the mules and he used to bring our food up to the front line. And he was really good,
5: yeah. It wasn't very nice crossing that Sangro River. It is very cold. We had to hold our rifles up right high up. Anyhow, we got started. We spread out along the bank and the bar- the barrage lifted. We had a barrage and the barrage lifted. And we went forward up the bank and over. And it was about two jackets from me stood on it. Trevor Beer, our hairdresser from Cambridge, he stood on a mine and blew himself up. I thought it was a shell, but I didn't know it was him at that time. And and our advance was there, under a
3: barrage, uh, was really in our area, 18th platoon. It was a cakewalk, it was good. We got right up and our objective was the village of Marabella.
1: That was my first action in Italy. Um, it began really with a night attack that went in at about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and I didn't think there was as many 25 founders in the world as those that seemed to be shooting on that night. Uh, and. Uh, we uh we were ordered forward and uh, away we went uh through the night uh striking pockets of resistance here and there um, got a few men knocked over. I mentioned a Trevor beer a while ago he was one you he might have been the first man killed, yeah. Uh, and we went on. I think our first objective was Marabella.
6: We crossed the River, dug it in a bloody bamboo thicket. It was like freezing in a bloody fridge. And the daylight come, we attacked the hill. By the time we got there, the, the hunters gone. That our platoon officer and one of the sections of a, of the platoon went forward into what it, into house and the hunt sent one shell over and one of the chaps got his wounded in the leg. Another chap, he was older fellow than me. He got concussion and he'd had concussion before. So they, we were late getting back to where we were going. And by the time we got there, the rest of the outfit had shifted on. And they had their tea. It was dark when we got there and we slept in this house that night. No blankets and no tea. We got
5: got some prisoners under a bridge, and uh, there was a bit of machine gun fire there. And we, we followed the road down. And just before we hit, come to a T there. The Germans knew we were coming, and this truck went tearing past. We weren't quite to the to the road; otherwise, we would have fired at him. So we got down and we turned left and went up to the house, and we caught them. Must have been having breakfast because they, (coughs) things were just on a bench there. Marabella, that's the place we were at.
3: Um, And so we got right up to a main road and across to a crossroads, and we came in from the back to Marabella, Uh, and we took no trouble. And we thought, well, this is home and host, But we were pretty naive then, and uh, there were a lot of Germans there. But of course, they were facing the river, and we were actually behind them.
5: Our officer called, them, called all his yuckers together, our fathers together, and um, a German walked out from a house, not far away, straight into the middle of them, and uh, realised, he thought they were, I don't know what he thought. We went straight up to our officer and shot him dead. And as he ran away, some of our jokers turned to fire at him and they found him. they hit him, all right? And just round the corner and they
8: found him. We found blood there. Found him. We went up that big escarpment, like a cor- That's where we went up, up there. And there was no jerrys there. We went up that escarpment in the dark and uh, and then we, there was a big castle like that, they, they were their farmyards and all that, they are all there shed. We bypassed that because we had to get on as far as we can and we got up the road and well, before we went up the car, we got to this road and there's some juries in the house and we got rid of them and then so we dug in there.
5: Now it is, Breaking daylight and um, Johnny Williams and I, the road run round to the right and there's a track running straight downhill to some sheds. I said, come on, get down to these sheds. So we run about halfway down, this, side by side, running down this track, machine gun shot. Williams, Jack Waldron, Jack Waldron, that's what his name was, shot him, didn't kill him outright, but he collapsed so I stopped, picked him up, put my arms around him. And he says go for your life. So I picked him up, carried him back up the track to the top of the hill and I, I never got hit and he just died to my arms. So it wasn't very nice.
1: The bloke and I were digging a slit trench on the roadside, near a crossroads um, and the rest of the platoon were in the house just behind us and we were digging away there and a bloody sniper uh, put a bullet through George's head, George Coulson's head, uh, clean through his head, you know, and I was in the same slit trench, you see, so I don't know whether the fellow was a bloody bad shot or uh, whether I was lucky but uh, he didn't get me anyway and I will bet I would have taken the precaution of keeping a lower profile uh, from there on. <clears throat> That's how we learned.
3: So we occupied a house there uh, and then we thought we better start digging slip trenches. It was still dark uh, outside the house so the section leader Uh, Laurie, Laurie Thode and I decided we'd build one together so we got about halfway down with the slit trench. It's getting daylight by this time. There was a burst of fire and Laurie was hit by three bullets. Uh, He wasn't killed outright so uh, I hit the deck for a while down, down in the slit trench and Laurie was in a bad way moaning and carrying on and uh, so in the finish I yelled out to one of the boys to give me a hand and and we carried him back into a house Um, and of course uh, he was still conscious but in terrible pain. Um, There was little we could do to him we didn't apart from our own uh, R.A.P. man, our first aid man who carried bandages. And by the way, he was a conscientious objector, uh, but he was right there with us. Um, He carried uh, bandages, of course, and some morphine. And when they gave anyone morphine, they wrote on their forehead, the dose. Uh, But of course, none of the uh, supporting weapons and so on could get across to us until a bridge was built, a Bailey Bridge across the river. So the next day the engineers are flat out building this Bailey Bridge. In the meantime, we'd captured a whole lot of Germans uh, and wounded a few. Um, and they were all in a all in a, a sunken, which had been a, a big drain or a small canal at one time, and they, they were well hidden until it got daylight. But a few bursts over the head of them, and the, the white flag came up, and they realised there was one or two tried to get away, and I think we got them with mortar fire
8: and so on. And I think I told you about Teddy Cumming coming up. He 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 just come from New Zealand. He's a, he's a young fella, you know, and he was good. He's a nice boy, and uh, he he must have got a bit when we were going up the hill, and we're going past this ca- casa. He must have got. Dropped off a bit, because anyway Jerry took him prisoner. But so we didn't have him. We didn't know didn't know what had happened to him. We just carried on. So we get up this road where we where we're supposed to go. This road went up to Castle Matana. Anyway, that's where we dug in, and that's where we dug in. And uh, so we were waiting then for because A Company or B Company was going through us which they did next day, and about one o'clock, who should turn up but old Teddy, you know? And I had a t- tin of tongues. And I opened it up because we all, when we first go in, we always took something like that, not, not bully, because we had plenty of bully, because we'd get them in parcels, you see? And uh, well, sometimes you'd get a tin of oysters and all this to come from New Zealand, you know? You'd have it all in there. You'd live like a king for a couple of days. Anyway, I opened the tin up, you know, and down come these 25-pounders, eh? And it was... it it was the... Supposed to be fired the night before at one o'clock, not not one o'clock in the afternoon. And they fired them at one o'clock in the afternoon. And that's supposed to fire them the night before they got mixed up. Anyway, and I said, get down, Ted, get down! And he got up to run back to his own slitty, and a bloody 25-pounder took his back out, eh? What a bloody mess, eh? And uh, we tried to do him up and went and got a blanket and we tried to carry him because we didn't have a stretcher-bearer there with us then. And you know, and he said, put me down, put me down. Anyway, he died down the ROP the next day. You know, Ted, he'd have been good to have him, you know. He's a he young fella you like, eh? Hey? there you are now, he never saw the war, you know. Building this bridge.
3: Um. German, there were two German Messerschmitts, 109 Messerschmitts, that kept coming over uh, and strafing the engineers and they carried a bomb each and they dropped their bomb and those guys must have, uh, you know, if they got hit part way over that bridge they'd fall in the water and they were gone. Uh, it must have been a hell of a job trying to build those bridges. Um, And anyhow, they seemed to have free reign. We had a squadron of Spitfires away up high. Um, And I guess they realised what was happening. Um, And a lot of it, I think, was being directed by this observation post, which was still on the other side of the river. Uh, And anyhow, Spitfires must have got wise to this, and they dropped one plane off. And they were doing a patrol up and down, you see. And these two German uh, fighters came in and they did their run and and strafed and so on. And then they came turned and they came back over the top of us, not much more than 50 feet high, and smack in behind them was a Spitfire. And just there in front of us, You could see his guns, see the smoke coming out from his guns. And a bit of stuff fell off that German plane, one or two bits fell off. And he just tilted his wings and and he hit the other one and he just went zonk. And a great column of black smoke. And the first one was still going. And he just got out of sight over the hill and he must have got him again because another great column of smoke went up. Well that was a fantastic morale booster to see those planes, enemy planes, knocked down like
6: that. And be caught up with the battalion and the mate and I we dug into a, a bamboo thicket with a slit trench and while he was there a plane come over, a German plane come over with a a spitfire chasing him and they fired uh, machine guns at each other and the, they cut the bamboo off each side of our trench and we never, we never got a mark. Um, we started
3: uh, advancing from there a day or so later and I remember on one occasion we found a German wounded. His leg was nearly off and he'd uh, crawled down into a, a dry drain, I suppose. It was, oh, a good six feet down. And when he ma- was hit, he must have taken his web gear off because it was lying up on the bank, and he'd taken his two boots off and got the laces and tied in a long line and had been throwing a boot up onto the top to try and hook onto his to get his water bottle, because he had no water. And all the bones in his thigh here were showing and so on. I think he's one of the guys we got with the mortars. Anyhow, uh, you know, I it, it, thought back at the time, we couldn't leave him there. Um, poor guy who was in a terrible state. So we had to dig a, a, a sort of a track down the side and, you know, it took a lot of effort getting him up. And then some of the chaps took him back to the, to the ROP was over by this time, the regimental aid post, and, and they took him back. So we went to quite a bit of trouble. And I've often thought since, you know, one day we're trying to kill the brutes, and the next day when we see someone, you know, in trouble, uh, we're trying to help them. But the move from there on was to a village called Castelfrontano. Um, And it was the winter headquarters for the German line on that side.
2: In this episode, you heard the voices of Norm Harris, Colin Murray, Galvin Garmensway, Fred Blank, Jack Cummins, Charlie Honeycomb... Ted Homewood, Bob O'Brien, Pat Green, and Harry Hopping. Grateful acknowledgments to all those who have taken part in the series and to the Tiawamutu branch of the Royal New Zealand Returned and Services Association for their support. The recordings for this episode were written, edited, and produced by Dave Homewood.